The same rain keeps falling as I take the L train and then the A up to Port Authority. A one-way ticket on a Greyhound bus, a damp paper bag of bagels, and a thick book are all that I bring with me. The road yawns and swallows everything whole. My head leans against the greasy window, and I try to find sleep, but every time I close my eyes, I think of her in the empty apartment and the note I've propped up on those milk crates that I'll be back for them in a few weeks. Her eyes were so big to begin with, but now they must be wet and round like dinner plates. Or maybe she just coaxes a few puffs from the joint that dangles in the ashtray and takes the dog for a walk. Maybe she's not sad at all, but relieved that I have done what she could not, cut the cord and thrown the horn. What had kept me there was at the bottom of the river now. We were all free. I'm Marco, and this is Songbird. Here we are with the second episode of the new season, and we're going right back to my conversations with Molly and Mike and Chris, the other members of Spitball. This time we're going to examine two songs, Rachel and Gun Parkside. So, Molly, I've got questions about the song Rachel. I was a, you know, messed up kid. I came from a bad background, and I was one of the bad batch kids, you know. I had met this uh, girl named Rachel, and they kind of looked down on me, and I was like, ah, you know, whatever. At around the same time, let's say I was 19 years old, I had also been getting into the Velvet Underground, and I had heard Lou Reed's song, how do you think it feels? And I thought it was so cool how it did that. Do, 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 do. Of course I could never do that. So that's my version of that. I guess my tribute to something that is so far removed. I think in my mind, I was like, oh, this is so cool. This is so like that. It was nothing like that. Incompetence is sometimes the mother of invention. And, you know, I had played it with some friends of mine. Then Chris and I were playing it, and then when Mike joined up with us, we started playing it. And then when you joined up with us, we started playing it. And it just captured that sort of frustrating, like, don't look down on us type of thing. It's not really about a single person. It's about, hey, you know what? We might be garbage people, but we're, we're pretty cool, you know? <laughs> You've already jumped to the next question I have scribbled down here, because I always <laughs> wondered, was that our sweet Jane? In uh, my mind... And I think in all of our minds, we were not this rudimentary surf band. In our minds, we may as well have been the London Symphony Orchestra. You know, if you listen to The Who, it's very, there's classical music movements. I mean, those guys are very talented. 
we thought of ourselves the same way. We thought that we were bringing, you know, the stars of the universe down into the streets of uh, Alphabet City and the Lower East Side. We didn't have a clue how inept we were. So in our in our heads, we heard symphonies, but then when you listen to the recordings, it's you know four teenagers just being messed up as hell. For anyone that just walked in, we're Spitball, and this is Channel 67. I remember that first gig at CB's. It was a big discussion set list. It was very conceptual. We never had any formulas and we weren't trying to please the fans. We were just trying to keep ourselves on our toes. And I just remember coming out, playing that song first, just like a wall of whatever the hell kind of sounds we were making. We also were playing through garbage instruments and garbage amplifiers. I remember finally getting enough money to buy a $200 amplifier and thinking that, you know, I owned Jimi Hendrix's last living Marshall stack. It was a PV amplifier that was like solid state, you know? And I was like, this is the greatest. Chris had bought some drums off a drummer that barely played and decided they wanted to be a police officer. And went, yeah, I'll just get rid of this. And like for Chris, it was the world. I mean, I bet he still has them. And <laughs> Mike had this bass that had kind of gone through, like my brother had originally bought it for 50 bucks and Chris was playing it for, like it was, my roommate was playing it for a while. Then Mike was playing it. And then he got some actual like knockoff bass or something. And we thought we were the cat's pajamas, you know? So how did we get that first gig at CB's? I really believe that was all you. So I used to go by CB's and uh, talk to Louise, who was kind of running the place. You know, I'd stop by there once a week. And mostly because I was just over at the Mars bar. And I'd be, you know, just go over there and be like, hey, is there any chance we could get a gig? She'd be like, who the hell are you? You know, do you have a tape? I was like, no. But she's like, well, come back next week. So I was like, what day? Like uh, Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I had very little going on in my life. I worked like 100 hours a week. So I'd be like, uh, I've got to take my lunch break. And I, you know, back then you made, we made so little money for so much work. And so I'd stop in there and be like, hey, uh, you, you, you got any slots open for us? And she's like, wait, who are you again? And sure enough, after like a few months of doing that, she was finally like, all right, play Sunday night. You know, and uh, which is not a good night to play. <laughs> but yeah, but by the time that that we finally got that gig, as you said, one person at a time, we kind of gotten a bunch of people that were like, "Wow, this band's really good." And so by the time we played there, place was fairly packed. Louise and Hilly were kind of excited about it. They saw us do our sound check, and they were like, "Well, this band is weird," <laughs> and, and very cool. And uh, I remember Hilly used to have that dog. Oh, yeah, that dog looked like it was, like, going to die in a day. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Hilly wanted to manage us, and I was like, I swear to God, I'm pretty sure we're breaking up next week. (laughs) 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 I was like, I I think we're, you know, we just were so volatile. You know, we we weren't the most uh, straight-A students (laughs) you could have found at that moment. I remember really well the sound guy, Rick, and 
you guys knew him or you knew who Rick was, but I just remember doing the sound check and just so that, you know, people listening to this understand, CBGB's is, yes, the home of punk rock. We all know the famous picture of the toilet and it looks, you know, the freaking nuclear bomb went off in there. But let me tell you something. The sound system at CBS was unfucking believable and the monitors which is the way the musicians hear what the other musician is playing are incredible and when you did a sound check at cbs you felt like a freaking rock star because you never sound that good and you never heard the other people that well i remember chris saying to me i had no fucking idea you were playing all that stuff that is so cool (laughs) i didn't know (laughs) and i remember rick really liking what we were doing. And in the middle of the sound check, he was digging in some crazy box and he took out some Frankenstein old Sennheiser something microphone for my horn. Oh yeah, I remember that now. And it was it was like, man, the sound guy at CB's, the most jaded, he's seen everything, you know, God knows what he's lived through. We inspired him to take out the special microphone. You know, aren't we some hot shit? And I got to tell you, when we went on stage, we started with Rachel and we just did not blink. And I i mean, when I hear this stuff, I'm like, I know we were a bunch of goofballs, but we sounded like a freaking freight train or something. We're Spitball. We want to thank everyone, Tom and Hank, the sound people, and uh, the brain surgeons. Thanks a lot for playing this song called Rachel. Let you get this down. 
do you remember from our first gig at CB's? I remember it was Flag Day. But I don't really remember that much other than, like, wow, we're playing fucking CBGBs. Like, how did we get here? You know, it wasn't because we were a really great band. But I think as we kept playing shows there, they were like, hey, you guys are a good band. I'll have you back. They had the crappiest bathrooms. And I remember, like, you get it all out of your system before you go there, so you don't have to go there. <laughs> Do you remember the green room? Vaguely. Imagine like, you're in a barn and there's like a horse's stall. Uh, that was the yeah, green room. Yeah. Okay. Not Narrow little one light bulb hanging, kind of stinky. I don't want to know what happened in here with other people just before <laughs> us. There might be fluids on surfaces. It's amazing that you remember that. Strange that I remember that. <laughs> smells all these things i remember and there's so much i've forgotten it's so selective yeah. you know i talked to orcuts sometimes and i'm just like i did not do that yeah memory is tricky uh, setting the tone right away i want to thank everybody for not being at that other show up north hello all right so now paint me a picture we go on stage rachel is the first song we're playing what are you feeling what is this moment in your life you know, you feel like, hey, I'm a member of this club, man. Is there a David Draper in the audience? Uh, this guy wants to know. Report to uh, the stage, David. Car's on fire. You know, the normal origin story for a band is they all went to high school together, mm -hmm. or two of them are brothers, or the two of them are sisters, or they all went to art school together. And they're all like painters who wanted to make music instead or right, something. Right, right, right. We were none of those things. How do you think these four very different people ended up not only in a room together rehearsing, but on stage at Seabees? You know, some of it was circumstantial, just as far as, you know, Molly bringing in Webb and then me and Webb hitting it off. So far beyond music uh, playing in a band level. We were just almost like inseparable best friends for like six years. It almost seemed like different things coming together and coming into a room together and then seeing if those pieces fit and then if the pieces didn't fit, that's okay too. You know, that people are bringing different things that may not necessarily be in your groove, but you kind of not work around it, but I, I'm specifically thinking of you coming in with the horn. I had never had any experience playing drums with a horn player before. It just required for me a little bit of different listening and a little bit of different reacting. And I feel like there was also a good amount of friendship in the room together. You know, that helps things to work together. There were a lot of laughs, and it's like you like hanging out with these people. And so maybe you kind of change what you're doing to bring that person into what you're doing. I felt that a lot. You know, I think I enjoyed rehearsing more than playing yeah. gigs because yeah. it was just, uh, this is just for us. Yeah. I mean, after we got through the, okay, who's this other person? <laughs> yeah. By the time we got kind of familiar with each other, which was a pretty fast process. Yes. It was, it's not, oh, we got to rehearse two times a week. It's, oh yeah, Thursday night, I'm going to buy some weird snacks and go into a stinky little room with these three yeah. goofballs and we're going to make some weird shit. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe some idiot will let us do it on right stage. right right you know <laughs> for me as the drummer guy i had moved to new york to play music and 
to be able to do that in at least what felt to be such a, a uniquely gelling situation uh, and, you know, retrospect, the rose-colored glasses, all that shit. But I thought that that was just how music is, you know? You get in a room with people and you go. You know, that guy's going somewhere. Okay, follow him. You're going somewhere. You come up with a great idea. All right, completely maybe change the beat because you feel it. The other guys are going to go with you. I mean, I thought that's just what happened, but it's not. That's really hard to find. I wish I had known that at the time because, well, fuck it. You know, I was going to say maybe I would have even appreciated it more, but I probably wouldn't because, you know, 20 year old, getting loaded, playing rock and roll, having a good time. <laughs> We're from this neighborhood here that CBGB's is in. This song called Parkside. I got a gun, I got a gun! Now I'm going to ask you about Gun Parkside. Now, obviously, a lot of people think about Parkside Lounge on East Houston, but I'm thinking I'm remembering Parkside was way out by Coney Island. Parkside was a stop uh, on the D train, and I was kind of homeless for a while. And I, a friend of mine that uh, lived out in uh, an area of Flatbush called Leffert's Throne, which is, you know, just right on the border of Crown Heights and, and Flatbush on the other side of Empire Boulevard, let me stay in there. They, they had a, a brownstone, which they called it a graystone. Back then, you could get them super cheap because there was so much murder and violence there. There was Jamaican gangs, who, of course, I would hang out with and talk with and completely, again, clueless. Oh, this is really dangerous. Uh, to me, I was like, this is really nice out here. <laughs> I thought I had finally gotten a place to stay in the suburbs. And... Um, now that, uh, you know, neighborhood has changed, but uh, back then, two out of every three houses was for sale. And so uh, I often would be running to get home, and it wasn't home. I was just staying with somebody so that I wouldn't be sleeping, you know, underneath a bridge. And because I was such a degenerate at the time, sometimes I would fall asleep as I was taking the D train out there. And, you know, I want to get off at Prospect Park and the, the next stop was Parkside. You know, then it's like, oh, God. I mean, the stops on the D train are pretty far apart. There was a diner on uh, Empire Boulevard called Toomey's. I mean, for six bucks, you could... You could eat enough food to last a week back then. So that was like, oh, my God, if, if I could just come up with this amount of money, I can eat enough to, to not have to eat for a few days. We're, I mean, we're kids, you know. I gotta walk back to my shop. Parkside is where 
Tell me about Gun Parkside. How did that song come about? Man, I remember I Got a Gun is the stupidest fucking song ever. I got a gun. I got a gun. I'm on the run. I'm on the run. Bam, out, bam. So is it just nonsense words? I thought so. I, I don't know what Molly was trying to get across. But I'll say this. Molly is a terrific lyricist, but like that was not her finest work. And I think we just threw that on it. I think we were just doing a dumb song. And I've always kind of regretted it because I also never knew what to play there. Like... Dun, dun, dun. I, I don't know. I thought I overthought what I should play there for sure. But Parkside, on the other hand, I, I love Parkside. Yeah. I feel like that's another signature spitball song. It's got such a sense of time and space. Like you're there. Empire Freeway looks like another boulevard. I can't remember the lyric. Empire Boulevard. Yeah. Uh, looks like any other freeway. Uh, she just paints her really. In fact, it's almost like a day in the life. Absolutely. For Molly. You know, I, I get tired and I fall asleep. I wake up on Church Avenue. <laughs> But you're right, it paints a really great picture of Brooklyn in the 90s. I'm trying to think of the bass part of that one. Parkside, boom. See, this is what I love. You can freaking sing the part from memory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was definitely trying to do something musical there, because Molly's singing isn't always musical. <laughs> I talked about this with Molly. She's like, someone had to do it. I'm like, it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> no, I said to Molly, you pulled the short straw and we respect you. No, that takes freaking courage. And none of us had it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. And Marco, she did it. Molly is an outstanding rhythm guitar player. Like, she's an outstanding guitar player, period. But her rhythm playing and singing and just being so tight on the rhythm just has always, like, awed me. That's for sure. But if I can talk about her singing for a minute. So I'm working in the A&R department at Columbia Records. And, of course, I'm passing our tapes out. And the feedback I always got was, you need a new singer. You need a new singer. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, Lou Reed, uh, Joe Strummer, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. You don't have to be a great singer. You have Your voice has to match the music. Molly's did. I just think sometimes she was trying to hit notes and she would miss. And that's when it was problematic. I'm surprised you left Neil Young out of that list. Talk about a voice that yes. could curdle milk. <laughs> totally. Excuse me. I need some cheese. Yeah. Just leave a glass of milk in front of Neil Young singing for five minutes. You'll have freaking Parmesan. That's the truth. And somehow no one says Neil Young can't sing, so shut the fuck up, man. Exactly. So it, I was like, all right, you guys don't get it. And they didn't get it. That was one of my motivations. I wanted to make it big because the Columbia A&R department would have missed something that was right under their noses. Mm. That was definitely part of my motivation, to prove those fuckers wrong. Hey. I wish parts on those songs were like two notes do 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 do, do. <laughs> and just like play the fuck out of it 
And, you know, I think it was a continental show, but there was this old black guy. I'm talking like gray hair, you know, the big afro, the whole thing, skinny. Mm-hmm. And he stood in front of me the entire show. He didn't dance. He wasn't like staring he was at me. He just checking you out. It wasn't creepy or anything, but he was just like yeah. listening, but he was kind of like mm-hmm. in his own thoughts. And I think it was kind of clear. It was like mm-hmm. the first time he saw us, probably, because I knew like he didn't know the songs. So he was always like, oh, a little bit surprised. And then he just leaned over to me at the end of the show. He says, you fucked the note, man. You fucked that note. You just take that note. You take that note and you keep fucking that note. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, that's the greatest compliment. <laughs> and I was like, what else am I going to do? <laughs> Not fuck the note. They didn't bring me here to like play of, I don't know, something sweet and pretty. It's going to get ugly, man. <laughs> and you made it ugly. But Marco, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I love your sax playing and it made the band so much better. But I don't know that there was a real good part for you on Parkside. Well, this is the problem. I couldn't find a place to take a step back and still be in a song. Mm-hmm. It had to be like in 100% mm-hmm. or in 100%. Yep. You know, it's funny because in other bands I played in, there was like mm-hmm. half the set I didn't play on. And I'd go over to the bar, talk to pretty girls, have a cocktail. Hold on, babe. Hold my drink. <laughs> I, I got to go back and do something. I'll be right back. He's too fucking busy to play on that song. He needs to have a, you know, <laughs> crappy warm beer but the thing was, it was very interesting to like not play on all the songs. It was a little bit It'd awkward. It. it was like, okay, I'm coming back. Okay, I'm, I'm going away. Mm-hmm. Very complicated. It was easier just to freaking stand there the whole time and fuck the note, you know? <laughs> so I'm dying to hear the story of how you got fired because I do not know how that happened and it bothers me to this day. But I will say, I remember when we talked about it, somebody, it's probably Molly, was like, he plays too much. And I'm like, well, the answer isn't kicking him out of the band. The answer is, don't play on that song. (laughs) We're going to get to this in seven or eight episodes. Okay. But it's good. Okay, we can hold off. But it's interesting, but of course, how do you tell a guy like me, don't play so much? You can't. (laughs) You can't tell me that. That's not what I do. I'd probably knock a truck over and, you know, go punch a kid in the face and steal his lollipop. Well, let me just say, though, when you got kicked out of the band, Spitball broke up. I don't remember if I reached out to you or not, but I remember the the night, you know, Molly told us, and I remember going to the Horseshoe Bar and sitting by myself and drinking. I was sad. I was broken out, man. I really, really was.
I'm going to bring you back to that very first show we played at CB's. What was going on with you? Playing at CB's is a pretty big deal. Just so much history behind it. It was nerve-wracking, but all the nervous energy seemed to pay off. I I do remember seeing it in the audience in different songs when we were really pushing it up a notch. You could see this reaction from the crowd. Can I ask you what you remember? I definitely felt like I was on one of those bucket list life moments. But I played it down quite a lot because I never want to feel like, oh, now I'm a fucking rock star. All I can say is I was very present and I knew that we were tight and we were ready, but we weren't over prepared. We were still going to be on the tightrope, you know, at certain moments. Mm -hmm. But all I can say is I was very present in the moment saying, this is fucking awesome. Let's go do this. Just Drummer guy wise, that's always a little bit of a struggle getting on stage live because you're excited, you know, you're you're raring to go, especially at something like CB's. And it's a real, at least for me, to this day, I have to make an effort before a song to be like, chill the fuck out, you know, play the groove. 
don't speed through it. If you think about Rachel and Parkside and I Got a Gun and so many more of the other songs, you know, they are, they're pretty mid-tempo. And I remember somebody said at one point, and I think it was said in kind of a derogatory sort of way, that Molly was kind of like the East Village Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. I mean... To be clear to our yes. listeners... That was not a compliment those days. No, not at all. Because he was like redneck music. Reagan freaking used Born in the USA on everything they did. That's right. The rednecks in high school who beat the shit out of the yeah, cool kids yeah. listen to Springsteen. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I do think Bruce is like kind of the epitome of rock and roll. I think he's a great songwriter. He's got great energy. And, and I think Nebraska is one of the best punk albums ever. Just to take your huge career... In his kitchen yes. on a two-track. Right, right, right. Looking back now, even though that was said as an insult, it's a pretty fucking rocking compliment. You should yeah, take that. definitely, <laughs> you know? You know what's crazy? Tom Waits, when he first started, mm -hmm. and Springsteen, when he first started, everyone sounded the yeah, same. Right. And they were all writing these songs that could all coexist on one album. Absolutely. About as old as we were. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely right on. Oh, I'm just trying to think Rachel. I can't remember if Rachel was about a drug deal. Was it? You're going to have to hear the episode. Okay. Molly does explain the backstory. All right, good. I'm going to make that one a mystery good, for good, you. Good. Every time I ask Molly what a song is about, it is the last thing that I thought that the song was about. You know, some of this content is, is about the time in New York and the East Village and all the drugs and everything. There was some fucked up shit going on, and that was a part of it, too. Yeah, just a lot of people idiotically being like, oh, I'm a rock and roller. I better start shooting some dope. All the people I knew, I never, ever heard a happy ending. It was always like getting clean and a little bit struggling with it for quite a while, or you fucking die. I felt like there was two kinds of musicians in the East Village, the junkies yeah. or the people in AA. Yeah. How the fuck are we playing if we're not in either of these categories? I know. And, and, and we didn't have tattoos. And we didn't have tattoos, yes. What the fuck? Who are you guys? Right, 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 right. <laughs> back on your own, you see what you want to see, and what you want to believe, and what you want to feel and taste one more time. But when we look back together, the picture gets sharper, and you start to see tiny forgotten cuts and bruises. You start to hear the audience and the sound of your heart beating wild as you play it cool. The sound of self-doubt the sound of a door opening and closing so slowly. Reunions are a strange cocktail of laughter and old wounds. And what you make of them is up to you. Scars always heal and fade until they're just a thin white line. We all have them.
All right, songbirds. This is the place where I tell people where they can find us. We're on all your favorite podcasting platforms, and even ones I bet you've never heard of. Or you could just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place you'll find the show notes. I've got another spitball flyer there for this one. If you're interested in the music I make, just search for Martin Ruby, that's the band name, on Bandcamp or Spotify and iTunes and the rest, or just go to martinruby.com. I have a new album coming out in January. It's called Jacob and the Angel. Next time on Songbird, tight strings, loose strings, and sunshine supermen. Thanks for listening. Songbird is produced by Bittersweet Content.